as I'm sitting there looking around the room, you know, I'd done a lot of work up until that point where I started to realize that maybe I wasn't in the right place, but I still didn't have the courage to really think differently about what I would do. But as I was sitting there, I looked around the room and saw these leaders that were not really in it for the right reasons. They were trying to defend their position, defend who's right and who's wrong. And I realized it wasn't really serving anyone. It wasn't serving anyone in the room. And a lot of people in the room had checked out. They were on their phones. In that moment, I started to think, wow, we are in this industry that saves lives. This is not how we should be doing this. So I had this moment of, wow, how can we change the way we lead in these rooms instead of worrying about ourselves, worrying about others? And so I decided that I had enough. I decided to just get up and walk out. And in that moment, I said to myself that I'm going to leave this room to change this room. And now the realization, that unlocked moment, was sitting in that room and seeing, well, wait a minute, this can't happen. I can't allow this to happen. And that's when the light went on and the spark was reignited that said, wait a minute, it's time to do something different. If I want different results, I've got to do something different. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. On this podcast, I learn about many different types of Unlock Moment. Some of them are subtle, the voice in your head telling you, this isn't the right path for me. Some of them are clear, the doctor telling you, you have to change your lifestyle or suffer significant consequences. And some are dramatic, a sudden, remarkable clarity that leads to immediate and bold action. Today is one of the dramatic ones. I met Tony Martinetti recently, but we share quite a few connections in common. Based in Boston in the US, Tony is a trusted advisor a leadership coach and facilitator, a best-selling author, a podcast host, and an in-demand speaker. He delivered his TEDx talk, Don't Check Yourself at the Door, just three months ago, and already it's gathered 1.7 million views. His message about how to create a more connected and human workplace is resonating with a wide audience. Tony has been recognized by Thinkers360 and Leaders Hum as one of the top voices in leadership. He hosts the Virtual Campfire podcast, and is the author of two books, Climbing the Right Mountain, Navigating the Journey to an Inspired Life, and his new book just out, Campfire Lessons for Leaders, How Uncovering Our Past Can Propel Us Forward. He has been featured in many publications, including Fast Company, Forbes, Life Science Leader, and CEO Today. 
I'm looking forward to hearing Tony's take on human, authentic leadership that enables leaders to be at their best and grow themselves and others. And of course, I want to learn about that dramatic unlock moment of remarkable clarity when, well, you'll have to wait to find out. Tony Martinetti, it is my very great pleasure to welcome you to the unlock moment. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to be here, Gary. This is one of those moments when I'm thrilled to be, you know, in the presence of someone who really gets it. And I feel like with our shows, we have very similar features. I talk about flashpoints and you have the unlock moment, which I think is so special. And I think it's great to be able to spend time uncovering that. So yeah, I'm thrilled to be here. Well, thanks so much. And I'm really looking forward to digging into your take on what an unlock moment really is. Now, before we come to this dramatic moment in your life, where do we need to start in your story to understand the person you are today? I'd like to go way back and I'll go, you know, move quickly through those early days because uh, when I go back to my early childhood, it brings some perspective of, of where I got stuck along the way. So when I was a child, I was this artistic person who you know, really spent a lot of time painting and drawing and kind of in my own little world of creating environments. Uh, I know that sounds weird, but the reality is that a lot of the things that I was drawing, they weren't stick figures or animals or, or people. It was more about in rooms and places, the, the feelings and emotions that you would have when you entered them. How interesting. Yeah. And so that was celebrated by a lot of the teachers who saw me doing this and saw it like, wow, you've got a fascinating creativity, but also you're really good at what you do. And time goes on. Eventually I found myself in high school doing advanced placement art and going to get into architecture school potentially. But then I started to have these moments with, you know, advisors and parents and all the other people in my life saying, yeah, you might want to think about doing something a little more meaningful because you know, you don't want to be broke and living in destitute on the, the curb side and, you know, worrying about how you're going to feed your family, maybe a little melodramatic, but the reality <laughs> is I decided to switch gears and go into pre-med. Oh, interesting. Because that made all the sense in the world, right? So here I am, pre-med major student, and I quickly figured out that that was not my path either and moved into business. And that led me into working in uh, a lot of different industries, but predominantly working in biotech for a number of years, particularly working in finance and strategy. So I got a chance to bring together some of my passions, the sciences and business, but doing it in a, in a place in an industry that was really meaningful and really rewarding, but also not me fully. And where was that? artistic child in that environment? Was it there at all? Or had you put that away, closed the chapter? Yeah, I kind of hid it away. I mean, there were still some inklings here and there, some moments that, that shine through. And I think a lot of people saw that in me, but I refused to re acknowledge it. Because when you get on that path of, hey, I have to work really hard to show up in a different way, it's like you start to realize that there's no place for that right now. I need to be the analytical person. I need to be the person who knows the business, who can be on top of everything. And so that was really the persona that I put on. But a lot of people would reflect back to me and say, gosh, you really have a sense of people. You have a sense of, you know, a lot of creativity and a lot of ways of seeing things differently. 
that is not typical of the finance person who we see, which again, I'm not trying to bash finance people. I love, I still honor and appreciate my finance career, but there was something about what people were telling me. Interesting. And bring to life, what's it like being in a biotech organization? I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're very different yeah. in many ways to many of the kind of companies that people might generally know and understand. It's a very, mm. very rarefied world, biotechnology. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your experience there. Yeah, it's the, the, one of the most challenging but most rewarding industries you can work in. Challenging because failures and setbacks and things just not going right happen almost daily. And you're having to build a huge capacity for resilience and always be thinking, how do we pivot? How do we change course? How do we think differently about the situation? Because gosh, we, we have to, we can't just give up. We have to continue to move forward. There's an old saying that I remember from one of my bosses along the way, you know, that patient is waiting. And, you know, because of that, we have a lot of responsibility that goes along with that. And so that's where the reward of this all comes from. Do you know how much meaning you can extract from your work? And um, along the way, as I was navigating my career, I worked on a lot of rare diseases and I got a chance to meet a lot of these patients. You know, even working from a finance capacity, you realize that everything matters. Everything you do matters. No matter where you are, whether you're, you know, using the mop to, to clean the floor or you're, you know, head of quality or you're the finance person, your work contributes to saving lives. And these patients really appreciate it. It makes you want to cry when you meet them and they say, thank you for all that you do. And um, we've had a lot of those touching moments along the way. Is there a pressure that goes with that as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it intensifies the pressure to, to keep on showing up every day. How can we work even harder to get where we need to go? And it just ratchets it up. But you have to come back to you know, how do I take care of myself so I can be there to continue the battle, to keep mm -hmm. on showing up and do more. So there is a self-care element of this, which is important, which I think a lot of people lose sight of mm -hmm. in this industry. And talk to me a bit about the scale of the gamble. So in biotech, you can raise a lot of money and your failure rate, as you say, is super, super high. So that sort of high stakes world, what does that feel like? Yeah. I mean, it, people think, oh, you know, you're getting all this money from VCs and it must be like, you know, you're going out there and spending it like drunken sailors, if you will. But the reality is you have to be thinking, measuring risk at every turn. Okay. We're spending this money. We got to make sure that it's got a return or how are we making sure that if this doesn't work out, how do we ensure that we're going to live another day? How do we, you know, put our bets on the right, the right ponies, if you will. <laughs> And I think those are the things that really make it challenging because it's hard to know what's going to work and what's not going to work, but you have to be able to, to take a really measured approach to how you look at things and know that you're also telling a story to the people who are investing in you, that they have to believe not just in what you're sharing with them, but also believing that you're going to be the type of person who's going to pivot, create a new momentum beyond what they currently see. Mm. So believing in you as a leader and your people in general. And talk about what that means for how high the highs are and how low the lows are. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I will say one of the things about the lows, and I'll just kind of just a small pivot from your question, is that we've we've had what's called a clinical trial funeral a couple of times along the way where, you know, clinical trials fail and you kind of figure out how do you make the most of that? Well, you think of it as learning, right? You have to, you know, take a failure and say, how do I turn a failure into something that, you know, we can celebrate the effort and celebrate the learning. And so it can obviously be a challenge because some people might lose jobs. Some people might be feeling like, what now? But at the very least, we have to honor the effort, honor the patients have gone on the journey with us and figure out what we're going to do with the information we've learned along this journey. So that celebration process is really about, hey, it didn't work out, but what do we learn? And on the highs, it's hugely gratifying to go through that process of saying, wow, look what we've done. Look, we're changing the trajectory of someone's life. There's nothing more rewarding than knowing that there is someone who's going to live a longer life, even live a better life, because it's not just about longer life. It's also the quality of life because of something you've done. And so there's a huge elation that you get from that. And you also think back about the journey that got you there and all the pluses and minuses and, and things that uh, the peaks and valleys that have gotten you there. And it actually is a good reflection on your journey in life in general, right? That you can't just look at the end story. There's a long journey that gets you there and you have to appreciate the journey. Mm, it's interesting. And I often talk to people, particularly in this kind of volatile, uncertain world that many people are living in at the moment. Mm. the resilience of the leader, you know, when the lows are that low and in a lot of sectors, a lot of roles, a lot of industries right now, the lows are really low Mm. and the highs don't last that long in the moment. It's amazing. And then a few days later, you're like, I'm just back into the drudge again. There's a difference between those people who have a resilience that enables them to go, okay, it didn't work out this time, but I'm going to learn from it and I'm going to go again. And those that get into this sort of spiral of negativity and it impacts their leadership and it impacts the people around them as well. So what's your take on how to stay resilient in that kind of environment? Yeah, I love that you bring this up because this is the thing that I focus a lot on now is a sense of how do you stay grounded in chaotic situations? And that's the thing that a lot of leaders need to learn that people are watching. They're always watching you. So you can't be freaking out when things don't go well or, you know, have a negative approach to things. I mean, you can show your sentiment, your emotions don't feel like emotions have to be hidden. There is a place for emotions in the workplace, but it's about staying calm and intentional in your leadership. And so the idea that like, okay, things aren't going to work out and you don't have to have all the answers, but you have to be able to instill the right attitude in the right environment in your workplace that allows other people to see, hey, we're going we're gonna to navigate this thing forward. We're going to move forward from here and we're going to take what we've learned and we're going to figure out another path mm-hmm. together. And so I think that calmness, that what I call groundedness, allows you to be able to keep the tone very much one of don't panic. Let's not freak out. Let's make sure that we figure out how we're going to move forward together in a way that is most appropriate for us and our patient population that we're working with. I think that there's something in this. I was listening back to my conversation with Dr. David Burkus recently, who's another one of Mm -hmm. the 
Marshall Goldsmith coaches, and he was talking about this idea of who is served by the work that you do and that connection to remembering your purpose, as you've talked about in the biotech space. You think of that patient whose life could be changed by the outcome of your work if you can get the product through to, to market into a successful drug or whatever it is. Tell me about your unlock moment. Tell me about what was happening for you at that time and bring me into that moment. Yeah. I, I think it's great that we've covered the ground we have already because it just goes to show you how hard it is for me to make the decision I did when I did have this moment that I'm going to talk about. I had a very successful career in this industry and I've worked on some amazing therapeutics and with some amazing leaders along the way. And then I found myself, you know, working harder and harder to be the person who I thought I was, you know, the CFO, the senior finance leader of companies. And I also realized that I was doing it not necessarily because I, you know, was doing it because I loved numbers, but I wanted to, to continue to move forward. I wanted to move up the ladder, move up to the top, because that's what society and the world expects of you is to move higher and higher and to reach the next rung. But it wasn't serving me. I started to continue to burn myself out and find myself really depressed, to be honest with you, but not outwardly. People didn't see that. I I was keeping it all in, which takes up a lot of energy, as you know. Eventually, I found myself sitting in a boardroom at a biotech company. And as I'm sitting there looking around the room, you know, I'd done a lot of work up into that point where I started to realize that maybe I wasn't in the right place, but I still didn't have the courage to really think differently about what I would do. But as I was sitting there, I looked around the room and saw these leaders that were not really in it for the right reasons. Yeah. They were trying to defend their position, defend, you know, who's right and who's wrong. And I realized it wasn't really serving anyone. It wasn't serving anyone in the room. And a lot of people in the room had checked out. They were on their phones. In that moment, I started to think, wow, we are in this industry that saves lives and is meant to not just save lives outside of this room, but the people inside of these organizations. This is not how we should be doing this. So I had this moment of, wow, how can we change the way we lead in these rooms instead of worrying about ourselves, worrying about others? And so I decided that I had enough. I decided to just get up and walk out. And in that moment, I said to myself that I'm going to leave this room to change this room. And I don't know how I'm going to do that, but I know that there's a better way to lead. And I'm going to be part of that movement in some way. No plans in place. Really, uh, it was a moment of courage that was followed by a moment of panic, uh, which was like, well, what do I do now? But I had to figure it out. And I'm glad I did because it was the moment that really created a path for me to really see who I was and what I was capable of and how I could create an impact on others. Let's just be clear here. It wasn't at the end of the meeting that you walked out. No. No. (laughs) No. No. Were you nearest the door or did you have to walk past quite a lot of people on the way to the exit? No, I mean, it wasn't like I was coming across the entire room, but there was a few people in the, you know, along the way. So yeah. 
they took note that I was leaving and I was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, that's their comment. But that was it. I mean, I don't, they necessarily knew that I was not coming back, but, um, but that was the case. And what was the reaction when you left? When I started talking to people after that, they were like, wow, what's going on? And I told them like, hey, I've come to this realization that I'm not, this is not me. It's not who I am. And I've decided to make a, a change in terms of how I want to show up. So more, more to come, but you know, this is, I'm, I'm ending my time in corporate. And I think the word courage is really relevant here because I know you and I both talk to lots of people who are in mid-career who will feel that thing, will feel that, mm. and they come and talk to people like us and say, I feel this and I feel very alone in feeling it. You know, I don't think anybody mm. else feels this and we'll go, I'm talking to people all the time who feel that. But it takes a certain courage to face into it and it takes even more courage to start to do something about it. It doesn't mean that you need to get up and walk out of the middle of a meeting that is, Definitely. as I said at the beginning, you know, a rather dramatic end of the spectrum. But it all comes from that beginnings of self-awareness of, as you sort of said, this is not my path. This is not the path that I want to be on and I want to have a different impact. And one of the questions that I always find fascinating in thinking about these unlocked moments, and I think what you describe is brilliant because it is that you weren't expecting to think that that day. It wasn't something you were planning. It was something that suddenly, suddenly was clear to you. How yeah. would you articulate the thing that you knew then that was not clear before that moment? Yeah, I knew that, well, first of all, I come to realization that my life had more meaning than I was giving it. And I had to do something with it before I regretted not taking advantage of it. Hmm. And it comes back to something that I recently, my coach, Dory Clark, she says this to me, and I think it's such a brilliant thing is that people value you to the extent that you value yourself. And I don't think I was valuing myself. I wasn't even aligned with my values. In fact, I'll go a step further to say, I don't even think I even knew what my values were at that point. So I had to take that journey to figure out, well, what do I truly value? Um, I had to ask some questions of myself. So, you know, I'm not sure if that's really answering your question, but I think the idea is that in that very moment, I had to start to really get clear about well, why am I doing what I do? Is it for the paycheck? No. I think I had questioned a lot along the way of like, is this all there is? you know, in, in life and in the, you know, in the path to creating our lives, there has to be more than what I'm experiencing. That was a question I asked a lot along my path, but eventually up into that moment, I hadn't taken any serious action to pursue something different. And then in that moment I said, well, this is it. This is the, the moment for me to take life into my hands and figure out what the heck I'm going to do with it before it's too late. And what's so fascinating about that is that the common thread which I'm learning in talking to people in all walks of life about a huge variety of different unlocked moments is that the common thread is the knowing. It's the knowing something you didn't know before. Sometimes, and in your situation here is a good example of, a decision or an action very, very rapidly follows. So mm. I am worth more than this, knowing, to... I need to figure out what my values are 
you know, starts to turn into action. I need to figure out what else I might do. Starts to turn into decision and action. I've talked to other people where the knowing came years before the decisions and the actions actually. But when they think about the moment itself, it's the moment of knowing something different. What's really interesting to me as I talk to more and more people about their unlock moments is sometimes you ask somebody about a remarkable moment of clarity and they go, I know exactly what it is. But sometimes they describe the action, the walking out, the quitting their job, the applying for something new, the having a conversation with somebody they haven't had before, whatever. And then you say to them, when did you know you needed to do that? Oh, that's different. That's a different time. <laughs> but I think I hear for you that the moment when you knew was sitting in that meeting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was, uh, there was buildup. I mean, the buildup was you know, having come to this point of being depressed, you know, having burnout, those little, the little moments along the way that um, what I'll use the term of like dampens my spark. Mm. But then it got into the point where it's built up. And now the realization that unlock moment was sitting in that room and seeing, well, wait a minute, this can't happen. I can't allow this to happen. And that's when the light went on and the spark was reignited that said, wait a minute. It's time to do something different. If I want different results, I've got to do something different. And why then? Why that meeting? It was just this looking around, you know, I think maybe I, I had just looked around the room enough to be able to say, well, why is it that everyone is, is not paying attention or not really, you know, in tune? And I also had this sense that this was not the first meeting that I've been in where People were just like, oh, this making up excuses and saying that's just how they are. That's just who they are. And made up this like persona of, okay, well, we accept them for who they are because they're the CEO, they're the, you know, C whatever. I don't want to kind of call out names. But the idea is that they accepted the situation for what it is. Hmm. And I had decided in that moment that I don't think that's really appropriate for us to just accept things the way they are. Maybe it's time for us to change the situation. And I told you earlier about this, the artist in me who drew environments and emotional tones of, of rooms. Well, here is a room I'm sitting in that lost all of its color, all of its emotion, the emotion of, of inspiration that I really wanted. And I felt that we needed to change the tone of how this room was. And I think that's what really got me thinking, this is why I'm called to this is because I realized that I no longer wanted to see a room like this. That's an interesting question. So how would the artist, Tony, have drawn that room? Yeah, well, first of all, it would have been a lot more alive with people sharing more of who they are, bringing more of themselves into the room. And it wouldn't be just two people, two white men talking. It would have been a much more diverse conversation that involved perspectives and people owning up to the fact that they may be wrong. Yeah. And that would create a more vibrant room, a colorful room. There's a sense of color comes from dialogue. When you think of dialogue, when it's exciting and energetic, it's colorful. When it's one directional or it's combative, then it doesn't feel that vibrant. If anything, it feels one dimensional hmm. or two dimensional. And I think that there's a very interesting 
dynamic when you think about societal pressures, which we were talking about before. If you're working for a biotech company or a pharmaceutical company or a healthcare organization, or you're working for a large organization that employs a lot of people, and it's about helping to keep that business being successful, which supports the employment of all those people or whatever products and services they serve for all of their customers. And yet, you know, so you sit there and say, you're supposed to care about this because think of the children, think of the lives you're saving. Yeah. Think of the jobs that you're retaining. But actually, when people get to a certain level of pressure or overwhelm or burnout, there is no thing that can make people stay connected and stay feeling as a leader in that situation. And I've experienced that in my own career where I've been in senior leadership roles in organizations that employed a lot of people. And the thing that kept me motivated every day was that thought of, we need to keep this business in business because of the thousands of people who've dedicated often, you know, the vast majority of their working lives to working for this business. It's really important. And I remember the moment where I started to feel burned out was the moment when I just started to feel like I couldn't do that anymore. Yeah. And, and I am sympathetic to scene leaders because it is a really, really tough environment to kind of hold that. But what's your take on that kind of impact in that environment? Is, is the pressure bigger because of the kind of business it is and the kind of emphasis that people have on, you have to do this because think of the children? Well, I want to dig into this. I think this is a, you've just tapped into a beautiful thing here because sure, the pressure's there, but no matter what industry you're in, there is one part of a leader's job of a, you know, let's call it the C-suite's job that is really important. It's making sure that you're keeping your um, sense of your self-leadership at the center of everything, that you can't allow yourself to be so burnt out to the point where you're taking it out on other people. In other words, your self-care and your self-leadership, which I often say those two things are really, they're, they're inextricable. They're actually an important part of your job as a leader. And so you have to make sure that you're taking care of yourself in a way that keeps you inspired because you can't inspire others without being inspired yourself. If your cup is empty, you're not filling anyone else's cup. All those things have to be thought of as a leader in order for you to be able to maintain the type of environment people want to show up to every day and an environment that is thriving, not just surviving, right? So it's part of the responsibility of being a leader. And for those who are saying like, well, that's just not, it's not feasible. It's not possible, right? I just have way too many things to do. I also want to challenge that to say, and I've been kind of like thinking about the idea of when we get into the C-suite, does it have to be so, so challenging? Well, maybe it's time for us to redesign how we think about the C-suite. Being more at choice about what we decide to do and what we decide not to do. And pushing back. Because if we want to survive and thrive as a C-suite executive, the best thing you can do is design an environment for yourself that allows you to be able to thrive. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's really right. And I've talked quite a lot on the podcast recently about when you look at the world's top leaders of the world's biggest companies, 
it's almost unbelievable that one human can own that scale of responsibility, pressure, volume of activity, volume of people. You know, you think if you're leading a Microsoft or you're leading an Apple or one of those kind of business leaders. And yet they do it because they are hugely disciplined on how they spend their time. Yes. And there's a lot of businesses, a lot of leaders of businesses that are not of that scale, but are huge, genuinely huge. And yet they feel as though they're running on hamster wheel and they push back and they say, it's just not possible for me to think differently. And then I say, and I've said it a few times recently, how does a hamster running on the hamster wheel stop running on the hamster wheel? They just stop running. They just stop running. Yeah. And that's the art. How do you do that? The other thing that you were making me think of when you were talking about that self-leadership piece, I had the privilege of going to a talk in London a few months ago by Simon Sinek. Oh, yeah. And he was talking about this brilliant concept of emotional responsibility. And it was that balance of, you do hear a lot of people talking about, well, bring your whole self to work, feel that you can be completely open in a work environment. And he was like, I'm not sure I subscribe to that, actually. And I think I'm with him that it's good to feel authentic at work. It's good to feel that you can bring what you want to bring of your whole self, of your home life to work. But you shouldn't feel under pressure to be ultimately vulnerable as a leader because actually, of course, your people are looking to you for some other things too. They're looking for you to be some kind of anchor, to be a bit of a rock, yeah. to be a guide, to be a direction, to be a, you know, something to help people to gather around when they're feeling hugely vulnerable and uncertain sometimes about the state of their organization, the state of the market, state of the customers. It's yeah. difficult out there. And I, and I really like that idea of emotional responsibility, of going, mm -hmm. I want to feel authentic, but I also want to feel protected. Maybe that's, yeah. that's the word, you know, self-protected. So I was fascinated by, you know, your TED talk, don't check yourself at the door, how to mm -hmm. share your true self. So exactly on this topic, how mm -hmm. do you bring your true self into the workplace as a leader without feeling open to the extent of vulnerability and, and, and all of that? Yeah, I love that you bring this in because first of all, it's there's so many things that are connected to this. You don't have to be, you know, this person who's overexposed or sharing things that you don't feel comfortable sharing. It's about opening the aperture enough that allows people to see that you're human and that you're there for them, but you want to make sure that you're building trust with them because you're showing up as your self. And your true self. And what that means is not like sharing vulnerabilities that you're not comfortable sharing, but it's about, you know, showing them parts of you that you don't normally share. Like, hey, you know, uh, what you do on the weekends that you're proud of that are quirky and maybe a little bit different. And then there's something that they want to share that brings in a sense of trust. So it's not about showing your vulnerabilities in a way that makes them feel like, wow, we have to show pity for this person. You don't want to create a sense of pity. It's about opening up and sharing what makes you weird in a way that also uh, has people wanting to celebrate that mm -hmm. in the same way that you would want other people to share their uniqueness so that you can celebrate them. And I think about the examples of like, you know, I had someone who I did some coaching with who had played the electric bagpipes, right? And I was like, whoa, that's so cool. I'd never even seen it before. I'm like, how cool would it be if you just brought that to one of the meetings? It's, it'd be a nice open up moment that you shared that. 
And so he did. And uh, the whole team went nuts. They were like, this is so cool. Never seen anything like it. And um, we had such an emotional moment and he felt so seen for something that he never thought people even knew existed, but also he felt so like celebrated for that moment. And it was vulnerable. Sure. Because he's like, I don't know if people even knew that I would, that I did this. So it's just those little things like that, that connects at a deeper level or human level. It doesn't have to be, you know, sharing your deep, dark secrets about like, well, you know, I was an orphan or what have you. But if that's what you're also called to, then that's great too. Mm-hmm. I really love that. And really fun to bring your electric bagpipes to work. Yeah. I can imagine not everybody wants to hear it. <laughs> Depends on your perspective on the bagpipes, really. Um, and I wanted to pick up on a particular word that you used, which is often thrown around right now in the context of leadership and resilience and growth and all this kind of stuff. And that is the word human. So when you say being human as a leader, what do you really mean? Yeah, human to me, and it's a good question, because now in this world of AI, you know, you know we got to make sure we're, we're being clear. Um, human is just showing aspects of us that are making us more well-rounded, as seen as a, a holistic person. We're not just the person who shows up and tells people, hey, we're, this is what we're doing today. This is where we're going. And here's the projections. And here's, you know, here's the, uh, the earnings call. And you know, just doing the business stuff. But it's also saying, hey, like, what's, what's challenging you today? Or what are the things that are on your, on your mind and in your heart? And hey, what are some of the things about your journey to getting to this company that make you really excited to be here or be part of this team? You know, asking questions that open the aperture about not just who you are as an employee, but who you are as a human. And I like the example of Patagonia, which I use in my TED Talk which is like, they want people to bring their hobbies to work. They want to understand, hey, like, you know, tell us what things you do outside of work and we'll give you time to even explore those hobbies, which I think is so beautiful, right? You know, when people can say, hey, like I'm doing a triathlon and people will go out and share for their coworkers to go out and do these things or they're going to climb a mountain and they want to go out and support them to, to raise money. That's what we're talking about is, to make it so that work doesn't have to be just about getting the job done, but it can also be about having people there who are part of your life. Tell me about the new book that's just coming out, Campfire Lessons for Leaders, How Uncovering Our Past Can Propel Us Forward. Yes. Where were you in your journey when you went, yeah, I've got to write this book? Yeah, well, I would say that the book idea came to me about six months into my podcast which I started in the pandemic. And my podcast is called The Virtual Campfire. And I, I had never thought I'd be a podcaster. Hmm. But You and me both. <laughs> but yeah, and now I'm 200 plus episodes deep. And uh, it's been the most amazing journey. Mm-hmm. The idea behind the book was just, I was blown away by the amount of insightful stories and the amount of things that I learned from people along the way. I felt honored and blessed to be able to have that, the opportunity to learn from these amazing people. And I felt like it was almost my obligation to bring these stories to life, to bring them to the surface and share them with others. But I wanted to do it in a special way. And so what I did is I decided that the book would be 
about these 10 key lessons that I've, I've seen as an important part of almost all of the different stories that I saw, but, you know, 10 big lessons that I think are important for people who are navigating their own path and how can they use this as a way to navigate and create a different trajectory on their life. Hmm. And then the stories would be the kind of a foundation of all of that. So that's really where the book came from. Fantastic. And are there, are there one or two of those lessons that you can bring to life for us? Absolutely. Well, one that comes to mind, just because I, I happened to be um, thinking about it this morning, was around dis- disrupting your thinking. And disrupting your thinking, you know, when I think about Whitney Johnson as one who really thought about personal disruption in the, in the first place, but I think uh, we have to disrupt our thinking along our own journey. And sometimes we don't think, okay, hey, well, you know, I'm doing working in finance, like what I did. How can I take a career in finance and pivot into something different? And Whitney's journey was really interesting because she worked, she was on Wall Street. She was doing analytics for like construction in the cement industry, actually, which was really interesting that that would be the case. Somehow she saw even the idea of disruption coming out of the business lexicon that Clay Christensen was using, the, Mm. the innovator's dilemma. And she use it as a way to look at people's own journeys of growth. So just the mere thought of what she did with disruptive thinking was disruptive. Hmm. So the example actually of her coming up with this idea was disruptive thinking in action. Really interesting. And when people have read the book, what do you want them to do differently? What do you want them to actually take away and do? Yeah, in the book, I give a little bit of context as to how to navigate the book. There's three C's that I share, curiosity, courage, and compassion. And those three C's are a lens to look at the book and the, the different lessons. So I want you to build those three capacities in your own life and your own stories and looking at, at your journey and how can you maybe reframe some of the things that you've been through and start to think, how can I move forward from here? using those three powerful foundations. And often people say that the book they wrote is the one that they need to read. What what have you taken away from writing the book and writing those stories and learning those stories? Well, I mean, first and foremost, it was so important for me to go back and learn the lessons again and say, am I living these? Am I living these lessons? And have I internalized some of these lessons? Like one of them is, to not go it alone. And sometimes when I look at that particular lesson, sometimes as a solopreneur, it can feel like I have to do this myself. And then I realize, no, I'm not doing this alone. We need other people. Success is not, is not a solo effort. You need people on your journey to support you, to champion you. And so I think that's one of the things about this book that I'm constantly reminded of each and every lesson and how I'm applying it in my own life. I'm not a done book. Uh, my book is far from being complete. And so I have to constantly be thinking, how am I applying these lessons in my life? And I think that plays to my last question as well, which is, I'm a great believer in people are continuously learning. And something that I've learned by doing this podcast is so often I'm having a conversation with somebody who I'm like, this person who is a real expert in their space, been doing it a long time, they must have it all together. They must have it all figured out. And then in the conversation, 
just as we're exploring, as we've been doing over the last, you know, 45 minutes or so, new stuff comes up or new connections are made. Is there anything that is clearer to you now than it was when we started talking today? Ah, uh, wow. Well, I will tell you that I, um, when we were talking about the unlock moment, uh, and I think this is great because it, it's a kind of a testament to, to the whole premise of your, of your show. I never quite thought about the power of looking around that room and seeing the connection to the, the artist in me. And so I think I love the fact you gave me that space to really dig in. I think this is why good coaches, good guides are able to give that, that moment and allow people to dig in and see well, what is it about the situation that made this unlock moment special. So, so thank you. Well, thank you for sharing that. There are two powerful questions in the unlock moment journey. And when I do keynotes and workshops with, with leaders in organizations, I talk about these two questions. One of them is, what's the moment of remarkable clarity in your life or career, which for you was in this room? The other one, which is actually, it sounds like an introductory question to the podcast, but actually it's an incredibly powerful question to understand a theme that connects all the dots, which is where do we need to start in your story to understand who you are today? It's not just an introduction to start at the beginning because people yeah. don't always start at the beginning. And you started with being a young artist. And so yeah. it's no surprise to me, but it's fascinating that when you said, what's more clear to me is the connection between that artist and the moment of remarkable clarity. So it's fascinating. And I really hope that the people listening to this podcast can hear those connections. And maybe when, you know, if you're listening, think about those questions for you. Where do we need to start in your story to understand the person you are today? And what's a remarkable moment of sudden clarity in your life or career when you suddenly found some new clarity about the path ahead? Tony, how can people find out more about you and the work you do? Well, thank you so much for this. The best place to find me is my website, which is ipurposepartners.com. And on LinkedIn, I am very active there. You can find me there. But if you go to my website, you can get access to a bunch of stuff, including my podcasts, my books, and all types of fun stuff there. So, Amazing. The Unlock Moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For leadership coach, author, and speaker, Tony Martinetti, his Unlock Moment was so dramatic that he got up and walked out of the middle of the business meeting to go and change his life in pursuit of true authenticity and purpose. Find his latest book, Campfire Lessons for Leaders, How Uncovering Our Past Can Propel Us Forward on Amazon and at all great bookstores and join 1.7 million others who've checked out his TEDx talk, Don't Check Yourself at the Door, How to Share Your True Self. Tony, it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Thank you so much, Gary. Brilliant. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this conversation with someone who took a deliberately disruptive approach to turning purpose into action, then check out episode 63 with world-leading coach Whitney Johnson, the expert on disruption, on the topic of regaining your balance after you disrupt yourself. And if you resonated with a story of a radical career switch in pursuit of purpose, then check out episode 42 with leading strengths expert Michael Leibrandt and episode 24 
for my laugh-filled conversation with the irreplaceable Dolly Waddell. Bookmark these episodes for later. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on the Unlock Moment.